Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2SCR nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Alashina, and coming up on the program... That's where the dividing line is at now, is like either we sit back and we allow inverted commas market forces to, to continue along their merry old way, or we intervene. We're easing into election and budget season by interrogating some hot-button topics, such as wage growth. Is promoting wage growth the way to speed up our lethargic economy? Also on the show... We did not create 40,000 jobs last month. We did not create 5,000 this month. It's, it's just a statistical estimate, and the reality is obviously somewhere in between for both of them. Although Australia's unemployment rate has dropped below 5% for the first time in eight years, the number of people in full-time employment has also decreased. How will this impact the Australian economy going forward? All this and more coming up on On The Money. First, on Monday, the New South Wales Parliamentary Budget Office released a report into spending estimates for both Liberal and Labor parties, with less than a week until the state election. The diagnosis? Our state's economy needs to future-proof itself for a post-housing boom world. But when it comes to our state economy, what do we consider an investment, and what do we consider a loss on the budget's bottom line? Max Tillman investigates. Our Liberal team has turned New South Wales around. We fixed the budget and repaid the debt. Schools and hospitals before stadiums is not an election slogan, it's a promise. It's a tale as old as time itself in New South Wales politics. The great battle in the sky between the New South Wales Labor and Liberal parties always comes back to one fundamental question, economic management. This election, the Liberal Party are building a stronger New South Wales, while Labor have hinged their public appeal on schools and hospitals over stadiums. But budget figures are notoriously hard to understand, with much of the meaning concealed beneath the jargon. This is evident in the costings released by the New South Wales Parliamentary Budget Office on Monday, which outlined the new spending promises from both major parties exceed new revenue promises. In a nutshell, it's looking as if the incoming New South South Wales government will need to moderate spending, including spending on essential services and infrastructure, but there may be another way out. A new report from the Sydney Policy Lab has thrown the question on its head, asking what we consider an investment and what we consider a loss on the budget's bottom line. Gareth Bryant is a lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney and the co-author of the Sydney Policy Lab's report. He believes the first question we must ask is how a government sees spending. So the New South Wales government is particularly dependent on the housing market and that's because the biggest source of revenue at the moment is stamp duty, which is basically a tax that's paid uh, when property is bought and sold. So what we're seeing uh, lately is house prices are going down and also the rates of turnover within the housing market are also going down. And so that means that 
stamp duty revenues are being revised downwards. So far, the revisions um, since 2017 over the forward estimates are about $9.5 billion. And so given that that is the New South Wales government's main source of revenue, that creates problems. The Parliamentary Budget Office report comes at an auspicious time, showing New South Wales needs to future-proof itself for a post-housing boom economy. But whilst taxes are always a good way of swelling state coffers, tax reform is a minefield. The costing from the Parliamentary Budget report shows that Labor's proposed luxury car tax would raise $227 million. However, Michael Daly has received criticism from farmers and workers as to what constitutes a luxury vehicle under the policy. To Bryant, it's an indication of how precarious tax can be to voters, as opposed to infrastructure spending, which is often seen in a different light. Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that was an interesting episode in the politics of government budgeting and and taxation, where what is really a... um, quite sensible and what probably the Labor Party thought quite politically non-controversial source of revenue, which was on expensive cars, did create a political backlash at least, which led to Michael Daly saying that they would they would reconsider the policy and how it affected certain social groups. What I think that shows is the need to carefully design tax reform to make sure that there's important elements of fairness and equity within tax reform, linking those tax reforms to other benefits, both in terms of being able to fund services as well as being able to redistribute wealth. When spending on infrastructure, the government can mark it down as an investment on a budget report with the assumption that the infrastructure will be sold off and privatised in the future. It's one of the key reasons that the state is seeing record infrastructure spending and why the squeeze on services, such as the schools and hospitals of Labor slogan fame, have become such a valuable election commodity. It's not the first time hospitals have been the centrepiece of an election pitch. Here's a young Bob Carr, 1995, in his pitch to be Premier. Mr Carr, what are you going to do about the nurses shortage? Well, I'll recruit extra nurses. It's part of my plan to slash waiting lists by 50% in my first year. There's no reason why state's power to borrow to invest in infrastructure couldn't also be used to invest in public services like health and education, according to the report. According to Gareth Bryant, with a change of rules, governments could borrow to invest in nurses and teachers at interest rates currently reserved for toll roads, with healthcare becoming an investment as key infrastructure projects have been classified in budget assessments. What the New South Wales government does is that it classifies um, a lot of that spending on infrastructure as an investment and that that's viewed as an investment in an asset that will deliver future returns, usually in the form of user payments like toll payments or asset sales uh, like privatisation. Uh, there's a good case to be made, uh, we think, and there's um, precedents in other parts of the world where certain parts of spending on public services is not ca- accounted for as a cost and is actually accounted for as an investment in public sector budgeting processes. And it's viewed as an investment um, because it's understood to increase levels of productivity, um, increase uh, levels of social wellbeing, increase levels of environmental sustainability. Um, And ultimately what that does is it returns money back to the budget in the form of avoided costs. Ultimately, the question comes down to how our next prospective government views Sydney's development. Australian property values fell $133 billion in the December quarter of last year, with capital city home prices down an average of 2.4% across the nation. 
It shows that property is no longer the cash machine made popular by successive Liberal governments. As our state looks for new and lucrative sources of revenue, the Sydney Policy Lab's report questions whether it's in the state's best interest to view public spending as an investment for our future. On the one hand, we're talking about a potential squeeze on services and the need to find new sources of revenue. On the other hand, when you look at the window anywhere in Sydney, you're seeing government investment in infrastructure, particularly things like West Connect. So the question that we asked ourselves then was, why is it that one part of the budget seems to be under squeeze, um, which is around public services, and at the same time, the government seems to be able to spend as much money as it wants on certain forms um, of infrastructure. Dr Gareth Bryant there, lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney, ending that report by Max Tillman. On the money, get your shake of the sauce bottle. You're listening to On the Money, around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Alashina. With the federal election imminent, there are numerous policies from various parties coming under scrutiny. On such policy concerns, wages. Both major parties have recently made statements as to what should be done about minimum rates. This week, a group of 124 experts in labour markets, labour laws and employment relations co-signed a letter demanding immediate political action to arrest the decline of the real purchasing power of our wages relative to increases in cost of living. One of the authors was director for the Centre for Future Work, a part of the Australian Institute. Daniel Ellison spoke with Alison Pennington from the Centre for Future Work, whose role is to promote excellence in progressive employment economic research, and started by asking what immediate action the centre would advocate to solve this wage crisis. Well, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that question. For me, there's the question of how do we immediately deliver wage increases, and we can do that through changing the employment relations framework. That can be pursued by any incoming government to raise wages in Australia. That's one side of the equation. The other side is looking at the mechanisms for, that allow workers to raise wage demands, so that's collective bargaining. That's eroded quite severely as well, and that's a lot of my research has been on the erosion of collective bargaining. So the second part to that would be deliver immediate wage increases through something like a living wage, which um, I can explain as well later, but... And then the other side of that is to increase the ability of workers to come together and say, look, this is actually um, a wage that we think better reflects the productivity that we have in this workplace. Dr Jim Stanford, who's the director, Mm -hmm. was one of three who penned the open letter on the benefits of promoting faster wage growth that was Mm. published on Tuesday. Mm. So the letter indicates that the real purchasing power of our incomes has declined while unemployment remains historically low as well. Can you explain for our listeners what the relationship is between the two? Yeah. So historically, uh, and the mainstream economic position, including that of the RBA, has been that there is a relationship between unemployment and wages. But what we're seeing, so on, on paper, what it looks like is we have historically quite low unemployment rates. It's sitting at about 5%. But what we're seeing is that a key labour market indicator of our time is rising underemployment. So that would say would say that's a, a key reason behind the, the wages crisis we're experiencing in Australia at the moment. 
which is the expansion of precarious employment. So that's you know, independent contracting, temporary work, labour hire and gig work. These are all versions of precarious work which uh, make workers feel more insecure you know, that will make it less likely that they'll be able to demand higher wage increases from their employer. So um, Labor does want to increase the powers of the, the Fair Work Commission to increase wages. I know, I know Bill Shorten at some stage said 12% over two years, and but another proposal was to have it, the minimum wage be tied to 60% of the median income. Would you, mm. would you agree with that proposal? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that 60% um, figure, that's a kind of... ILO internationally recognised sort of benchmark. That's the 60% mark says that that's something to to work towards that allows all workers to enjoy a decent wage and also to diminish levels of inequality. So in Australia, the 60% mark has what the ACTU, which is the um, peak union body in Australia, has been advocating for a 60% mark, and this is what is being termed the living wage. So 60% of median earnings would be closer to what would be required uh, for a worker's income to reflect the real costs of living, not just, um, you know, the immediate essentials, but living wage encapsulates the things that would allow a worker to have a decent, a basic but decent life. So, you know, things that, that take into account communications issues, the telephone bills, some small recreational costs, um, so it's a, it's a much broader, I guess, a much broader term than than the where the minimum wage is at right now. Great. So so the Labor Party would like a, a living wage. Josh mm-hmm. Frydenberg wants to give two hundred billion dollar tax cut to small businesses and individuals. H- how do you think those two options stack up? I think there's there is a deep contradiction in the coalition's wages policies, which says we have to wait for market forces. Um, let's deliver more tax cuts, and in time, you know then employers will maybe hire more people uh, or they might raise wages. So what we've seen in this time is actually record high profit share of national income and declining capital investment. So that's the business investment in what we would say is economist productivity increasing measures. So things like new technologies, uh, new software, things that allow people in the workplace to create more value with their work. And we've seen, of course, we've had the, the decline of the mining boom, but all of the government's policies have failed to actually re-spark investment. So profits are being hoarded, they're sitting around in slush funds and they're not being reinvested. And also at the same time, an employer offensive has been emboldened to cut wage costs. So under this this model of delivering tax cuts to put more money into the pockets of employers, it's sort of wishful thinking without any true government intervention to ensure that there are incentives for employers to actually invest that money back into the economy. That's that's where the dividing line is at now, is like either we sit back and um, we allow inverted commas market forces to, to continue on, along their merry old way, or we we intervene to to set a more positive wage-boosting um, you know, framework for employers to function in. And that's where this letter that's come from uh, over 100 economists, experts and lawyers across Australia have come and so I've just got one one last question. The, the letter also referenced uh, wage suppression by governments, and the workers' share of income has been in decline since 1975. So that is definitely a form of wage suppression. But do, do you think it would be fair to say that wages are low because of the actions of both Labor and coalition governments over the past decades? Uh, I think 
one key critique, you could say, is that the Fair Work Act, which was introduced by the Rudd and Gillard governments, or overseen by both of those governments, uh, that that piece of key legislation, which is what the Labor Party wrote in on into government last time, has failed to counteract some of these trends that have been in, in place for for some time now. So I think it would it would be fair to say that the industrialisation legislation that had been set up by the Labor Party had failed to counteract the the disparity between power between an employer and employee. And I think what we're seeing now in the coalition government is there's been a, a, an increase in the anti-union sort of offensive that they've driven through various policies and institutions and making um, it more difficult for unions to do their job and to enter workplaces and talk to people and um, coordinate wages campaigns. But a lot of the trends that we're seeing now, I think, have been in place for some time and are, are heightening now. So this is why this election is particularly powerful and particularly important because it, it does mark the possibility for the Labor Party to to also move in a, a different direction to where it has been in in the last in the last ten fifteen years. That was Alison Pennington from the Centre for Future Work, ending that report by Daniel Ellison. You're listening to On The Money, around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Alashina. Earlier today, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released new data that showed unemployment in Australia has dropped below 5% for the first time in eight years. Now at 4.9%, Australia hasn't seen employment this low since Labor was last in power in June 2011. However, the number of people in full-time jobs dropped for the third time in four months. Ben Robinson spoke to Warren Hogan, industry professor at the Dean's Unit at UTS Business School, to find out why it took so long for employment to drop this low. The unemployment rate obviously moves in line with trends in the labour market and they're usually pretty gradual. So, you know, we've had an economy that's growing probably a little bit below its um, average level from the past 20 or 30 years. So it's been a bit of a grind to get here. The other thing is you can't move unemployment quickly, um, not without risking either unsustainable things going on like um, in industry or, um, of course, making those jobs that you generate unsustainable. So it is something that tends to move pretty slowly over time. Why does the economy move slowly over time? And like, why does it take so long for unemployment to really kind of get at a good level? I mean, there's a lot of debate around concepts like full employment and, of course, the unemployment rate reflects uh, a level of, you know, the level of people who haven't got jobs who are seeking jobs. But behind that, there's obviously a lot of churn. And, of course, there's constant change going on in the economy where firms and even industries are weakening or even going out of, the firms going out of business and new firms coming up and new industries flourishing. And, of course, people are chopping and changing jobs all the time. So you tend to find overall economies like um, ones the size of Australia just tend to you know, not move like the Titanic, but it is a nice analogy, this idea of an ocean liner, things moving quite gradually and, and conservatively. It also talks to momentum that it often takes a while to turn these things around one way or the other. As I understand it, only 4,600 jobs were created in February, which is down from nearly 40,000 in January. Is it common for there to be such a big decrease in new jobs so early on in the year? 
it's not a seasonal issue. Um, it's really just that the data is very volatile, and it's one of the reasons that economists uh, tend to look at the unemployment rate rather than the monthly changes in employment. It's quite a small sample. It's a done by phone, and the sample rotates every eight months. So once you're in the sample, you stay in there for eight months, and that creates a lot of what we'd call from a statistical point of view a lot of noise. So you do not read the job creation literally month to month. You, my preferred way is to look at the trend and I sort of talk about the, the short-term trend being sort of what the level of average job creation is over the previous three or four months. We did not create 40,000 jobs last month. We did not create 5,000 this month. It's, it's just a statistical estimate and the reality is obviously somewhere in between for both of them. So unemployment now sits at 4.9%, the first time it's been that low since June of 2011. Labor was in then, Liberals are in now. Can either political party claim credit for this one? Or is that just the markets working on their own? Yeah, look, I mean, the government's sitting there the whole time, with whatever party's in, and, and, and their policies do matter. Um, but I think, you know, the one thing to sort of I think it should be made very clear, and this isn't just in Australia, this is in America and Europe and all economies, is that what you're getting now with the unemployment rate, what you're getting now with the labour market trends, is really a culmination of things that have happened in the economy for many, many years in the past. You know, it's, it, it certainly reflects the health of... The, the unemployment rate now is a reflection of the health of the economy in terms of things like demand and levels of interest rates and business investment probably last year. And, of course, things like that, those outcomes reflect decisions around policy and uh, various things from many, many years before. So I, I always you know, find it very um, un- unappealing to give credit to any given party at any given time because essentially what's going on in the economy now is a, is a cumulative of a whole range of things that have happened over many years. Obviously, what's happened in the last few years is probably most important, but policy changes five years ago can have an effect now, and sometimes things take a while to play out. This is this concept of lags in, in the economy. With that being said, we are heading into election season with a federal election only a couple of months away. And I imagine that both parties are going to be trying to use this to their own advantage. How do you think this new data will play in the upcoming federal election? Well, it's, it's, I think it's going to play to the government strongly. I mean, they've had a platform of, you know, what's the slogan? Jobs and growth. Um, and, you know, I think people are critical of the way they've presented themselves and said they haven't pushed that enough because they have this pretty good record. Obviously, the government took quite a hit in the last few weeks, particularly after we got those GDP numbers, which were very soft, and all this talk of a per capita recession. And you know, this was the, the Labor Party and other sort of like-minded commentators sort of saying, well, where's, where's your growth? You know, you've got no growth, you've got this per capita recession. By the same token, the government can, I think, quite justifiably say that, well, look, we're getting still pretty strong employment growth and the unemployment rate is still, to this stage, pushing downward. But as we know, they'll all try and colour it their own way. But I think the reality is, is given that the government's been in power for six years, that they can take some credit for it. And I think that's the way it'll be read by the broader community. Now, I just want to focus a little bit on the RBA. They're under a lot of pressure at the moment from the finance sector to cut interest rates this year. How do you think this news will affect the RBA's decisions this year? There is this sort of chorus of people saying that they should be cutting rates or that they will cut rates in the coming months. 
And financial markets react to that. And we've seen um, things like market expectations for interest rates fall. One really um, important indication of this is the three-year government bond yield, which is essentially a way of saying what the markets think the interest rate will be over the next three years, has fallen down to the level of the cash rate. And historically, when that happens, that's not only a strong signal that the market thinks there'll be a rate cut, but it's it's because it is the market as opposed to forecasters that are pricing this. You often do see a rate cut come in the subsequent six months or so. So the RBA is, is obviously open to this, and they've said that. But at the same time, they don't want to rush into anything. They've already got interest rates very low in their view. They think policy is stimulatory, i.e. supporting the economy. And so some of this economic weakness we're getting, they're already set for. They already think that the policy setting is right. And today's number is really important because part of the analytical frame that they've put out there in the last few months about whether they're going to cut rates or not has been about how the labour market performs. Specifically, the governor said if the unemployment rate starts to display a persistent upward trend, then they'll look at cutting rates. And of course, we just saw the unemployment rate fall. So this will really sort of be a pushback on the market. We've seen it in market trading today. The Aussie dollar has risen a lot on the view that there's a lower chance of interest rates falling here. And of course, I imagine some of the commentary a bit more tempered. That doesn't mean the next move in rates won't be down. It just means that we're very unlikely to get a rate cut in the next few months. Warren Hogan, industry professor at the Dean's Unit at UTS Business School, speaking there with Ben Robinson. You're listening to On The Money around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Alishina. That's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to producers Max Tillman, Ben Ellison and Ben Robinson. And executive producer Roderick Chambers. On the Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network. You can find all our shows and stories at 2SER on the Money. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. New episodes are coming out every week. To follow us on Twitter, look for at on the Money 2SER and find us on Facebook and Instagram for our updates. I'm Veronica Alashina. We'll be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.